1: I was told there were four bodies inside the double wide mobile home. Once we found out the extent of their injuries and the fact that their throats were cut, and then they were shot post-mortem, it seemed very, very aggressive and personal and somebody full of rage and hate. I've never seen anything like it before or since.
2: It's Halloween night in Pendleton, South Carolina, two hours northwest of Columbia. Ghosts, goblins, and monsters roam the streets, doing their best to look scary. But just outside of town, a different kind of monster has come to the front door of Mike and Kathy Scott. Inside their double-wide trailer home, it's eerily quiet. A bowl of Halloween candy sits undisturbed by the front entrance. In the bedroom, the body of Kathy Scott lies in a pool of blood. And in the living room, there are three more victims. Kathy's husband, Mike, her mother, Violet Taylor, and Mike's mother, Barbara Scott. Four members of the same family have just been executed with military-style precision in a gruesome Halloween nightmare. I'm Steve French, and this is Unsolved Mysteries, The Scott Family Massacre. On Monday, November 2nd, 2015, a woman calls 911 to report she's just found four bodies in a rural home outside Pendleton.
1: Pendleton is an older town in South Carolina. It's been around for a long time. It's a small town. It probably would have been considered like a plantation town in you know the 19th century. A lot of
2: old money kind of town. Staff Sergeant Scotty Hill was on duty as a detective with the Anderson County Sheriff's Office when the call came in.
1: Pendleton is not somewhere that we have a lot of violent crime. And then this part of Pendleton is actually more of a rural area. It's not even part of the town of Pendleton. It's just somewhat busy as far as traffic because you can cut between major highways, but you know, you don't have foot traffic, nothing like that. It's a few homes not somewhere where you would see a lot of activity other than cars just driving through. I was working that day and like all of us that was working that day, if you were a detective, you got called and told to respond to the scene. We didn't know if there was a killer or if the killer was inside the house. By the time I showed up, it was a pretty big scene. Detectives were arriving, forensics was arriving. There was people everywhere by the time I got there. There are two mobile homes on the residence. We identified them as the double wide and the single wide. It was at least a few acres, the property. Four people lived in the double wide. Mike and Kathy Scott, they owned it. They were a married couple. And then each of their mothers lived with them. Violet Taylor, who was Kathy's mother, and then Barbara Scott, who was
2: Mike's mother. Kathy Scott's daughter and son in law live in a separate trailer home on the property. They tell police they spent the weekend with his family in Columbia, arrived back home late Sunday night, and have no idea what happened to the four victims.
1: So, in the single wide lived Amy Villardi, who was Kathy's daughter, her husband Ross Villardi, and then their children. Amy Villardi is the one who called in the actual crime to the sheriff's office. She called 911 and basically said she went to her mother's and found her family deceased inside. Mike and Violet and Barbara were all found in the living room, and Kathy was found in the master bedroom, and, you know, obvious injuries, lots of blood. Still, to this day, probably the bloodiest scene I've been to.
2: At first, the scene appears to Detective Hill as if it could be a classic murder suicide. With Kathy found separately from the others, it looked as if she could have shot her husband, mother, and mother in law, then retreated to the bedroom and killed herself.
1: What really kind of ended that theory was kind of twofold. They first moved Kathy, and she didn't have a gun. So. That really took the wind out of the sails that she shot everybody and then shot herself because there was no gun. And then of course, when they got to Mike and Barbara and Violet and saw that the throats had been slashed, it was very clear at that point that we were dealing with someone who had murdered all four of these people, someone or possibly multiple people that had done this. They all died from stab or slash wounds, Mike, Barbara, and Violet were all killed by their throats being slashed, and Kathy was killed by a stab wound to the chest. Mike, Barbara, and Violet were all shot post-mortem. Kathy was shot while still alive, but that wasn't what killed her. It was the knife wound to the chest that killed her.
2: It's a rare quadruple homicide, and with each victim stabbed then shot, it's also a clear case of overkill. There's no sign of a break-in or forced entry, and no obvious ransacking of the home. Mike was likely the first victim.
1: With Mike not having any kind of sign of defensive wounds or any sign of a fight, I definitely believe he was caught off guard. It seems like they were probably at least a couple of them in the living room watching TV. You know, it's hard to say with Kathy, because she moved around during the attack. We know that she went from living room to the master bedroom, so I can't say she came out of the master bedroom first, into the living room, then retreated back into the master bedroom. So I'm not sure where she was, but it definitely appears Mikey at least, was in the living room watching TV. I think with there being no force entry and Mike showing no signs of trying to fight back, it tells me that his guard was down, which leads me to believe he knew the person who was in his house.
0: A short time ago, the names of those who died in the home behind me were released. Family in disbelief over the tragedy that has fallen upon this close community. I'm Pam Isbell. My mother was Barbara Scott and I am the sister of Terry Michael Scott two of the victims who were killed in the Pendleton quadruple homicide. The other two were my brother's wife and her mother. At the time of his death, Mike was 59 years old. He is my older brother. He worked for South Carolina Department of Transportation. He was on a road crew. So he was outside a lot, which was one of the things that he loved the most about having that particular job. I like to say that Mike got all of the good looks in the family. He was a very handsome man, tall, strong, dark hair, turning lovely shades of gray. He was a very hardworking man. He spent his life, much like our mother, trying to do good things for family, for friends, for neighbors. As we aged, we definitely became closer. He was always there for me. He was my biggest supporter. No matter what was going on in his life, he took time to be a part of my life. We talked pretty much every morning. That was the way that my morning always started, was a telephone call from him. I still find myself thinking it's about time for Mike to call.
2: Pam not only lost her beloved brother, but she also mourns the death of her mother, Barbara Scott, who was 80 when she was murdered.
0: Everybody knew her. She was a wonderful, wonderful cook. She loved doing for other people. She loved her family. She did a lot of babysitting for people in her community. She really enjoyed being with the babies.
2: Mike's wife, Kathy Scott, was 60 when she was murdered. She and Mike had been junior high school sweethearts, but they married later in life and had been inseparable ever since. Kathy's niece, Tammy White, was close to both her aunt and her grandmother, Violet Taylor.
3: My aunt Kathy was a people person. She worked in restaurants for most of her life as a waitress, so she liked to be around people. She liked to make people laugh. She liked to always laugh real bubbly. My grandmother was the sweetest woman that you would have ever met. She didn't say much. She was very shy and kept to herself a lot, but she was very caring. She was a very peaceful lady. I've never really ever heard her say anything bad about anybody.
2: Pam Isbell spoke with her brother, Mike, that Halloween evening. He and Kathy were looking forward to celebrating the holiday with their grandchildren the next day. Pam didn't hear from him on Sunday, which wasn't unusual. She called him on Monday and left a message, but by then he was already dead. Pam only learned about her brother's murder when a cousin called.
0: She said, I don't know how to tell you this. The preacher is there, and there are four dead bodies at Mike's house. And that's all I remember.
2: The exact time of the murders is unknown, but detectives are able to narrow it down thanks to Kathy Scott's brother, Roger. On Sunday afternoons, he usually stopped by Mike and Kathy's home to say hi. But on this Sunday, there was no answer at the door, so Roger left without seeing them. Staff Sergeant Hill thinks that's because the murders had already taken place.
1: Our coroner's office ruled their death as being on November 1st. I believe they were killed Halloween night. Last activity we have on their bank accounts was that night. Mike and Kathy went out to dinner that night. There was still Halloween candy by the front door. I don't know if they were anticipating trick-or-treaters, but they had candy
2: by the front door. Since the victims were all stabbed and then shot, another theory emerges about the perpetrator.
1: With there being two weapons used, it suggests that two people were involved. I won't say it's impossible for it to have been one person. I will say whoever used the knife was a very skilled person with a knife. This wasn't somebody who picked up a butcher knife and, you know, out of anger, this is somebody who was at least trained on how to use a knife. The majority of people who work this case's opinion is that there were two people involved, one with a knife, one with a gun. Again, we don't believe this was a kitchen knife or anything like that. So we believe the killer brought the knife with him or her and they were let into the house, most likely. The family had to have known them because nobody put up a fight until after the attack occurred or started. So I definitely believe this was well thought out, well planned by the people who perpetrated it.
0: All four victims suffered violent Not the kind of murders that you just happen to kill someone or you break into a home and you're surprised by someone still being up or awake or whatever. These deaths were not like that. People from the sheriff's department described it as the worst scene that they had ever investigated.
2: Mike, Kathy, and their elderly mothers lived a quiet life in rural South Carolina. At first glance, they appear to be unlikely targets for a murder this vicious.
1: None of these people would have, as far as we have found, would have crossed anybody or done anything to someone who would want to hurt them. They didn't do drugs, you know, they didn't drink excessively, they didn't gamble. There's absolutely nothing in their history to lead us
2: There is one investigative angle that intrigues detectives. In addition to working for the Department of Transportation, Mike had a second job to earn extra money.
0: Mike was well-known in the area for being the buyer and seller. If you needed some cash and you had something that you wanted to sell, a lot of people knew he was the person
2: to call. Mike bought and sold a variety of items, including jewelry and gold. At one time, he conducted transactions at his home, but stopped when Kathy became concerned about safety. However, because the deals he made were in cash, he often had large sums of money in the house.
0: When I was first questioned, I was asked if Mike would have had a lot of cash there at the house. And I told them that he would. They asked me how much. I'd say anywhere between $70,000, $80,000 in cash. And they told me then, oh, well, we did not find that amount of cash in Mike's house.
2: That suggests robbery as a possible motive. But in the bathroom, police find a small safe stuffed with cash could the killer or killers have missed this hidden money?
1: I was the one who found the safe and it was pretty well hidden. Like I guess we missed it the first night. So I don't think they knew it was there, and that's the only reason why they didn't take it. It was tucked in behind the toilet. It was one of those lucky moments where I'm in the bathroom kind of looking around and it just kind of caught the, you know, other side of my eye. It's like, what is that? And walked over and it turned out to be $20,000.
2: There's no way to know how much money was actually in the home, other than what was contained in the safe.
1: According to family members, no one other than family knew that Mike kept a lot of money in his house.
2: As part of their investigation, detectives obtain a search warrant for the home of Amy and Ross Villardi, who lived in the single-wide trailer home. And that's where police make another surprising discovery.
1: We found... A little over $65,000, I think it was $67,000, almost $68,000 in a safe in the master bedroom of the single wide. The amount of money we found in the single wide did raise some questions because we were told by various family members and confirmed through interviews that Amy and Ross, who lived in the single wide, were in financial trouble. Their cars were about to be repossessed. They were about to be kicked out of the building they rented for their business. So it was pretty surprising to find that amount of
2: money when they were having financial issues. During the same search of the Velarde home, police find a large stash of guns and wonder, could one of them be the gun used in the four murders? Whenever
1: we're on a scene like this and we know a gun's involved, if we see a gun, we're gonna take the gun because we don't know if it's the murder weapon or not. We did take every gun we found in there. Ross Velarde claimed most of them and he was a Marine, so it really didn't seem out of the ordinary for him to have a lot of guns. Being military and being here in the South, you know, everybody has guns down here and, and especially former military would have more than even the average person.
0: I was surprised that a lot of cash was seized from Kathy's daughter's residence. I was also very surprised that one particular gun that was registered in Mike's name was taken from the other residence. And that really made me begin to wonder if this gun belonged at Mike's house. You know, what other things were taken from there that I didn't know about?
2: Police find no sign of the murder weapon inside the single wide, and both Amy and Ross appear shocked by the homicide. Amy even speaks on camera to a local news reporter.
3: I keep feeling like I should be waking up from a dream. Right now, and it's just not happening. So, yeah, it's like a movie or something. It's not supposed to be real life.
1: Amy provided us with a few potential suspects, but we were able to rule them out pretty quickly through alibis and even in some cases, phone records showing they weren't near the scene of the crime when it occurred. So, Kathy's daughter, Amy, and her husband, Ross, were initially very cooperative with the case. Once the focus of the investigation turned toward them being potential suspects, they stopped cooperating altogether.
2: In addition to Amy and Ross Villardi, detectives take a close look at several other possible suspects.
1: We pursued a lot of suspects. There was a neighbor down the street that we initially looked at as being a potential suspect. Him and Mike had had a bit of a falling out over a deal that didn't work out. He tried to sell Mike something, but Mike told him he wasn't interested in the item, and the neighbor got upset. We looked into him. He had nothing to suggest he would know how to use a knife in this way. He just did not fit with our theory of what the killer would look like. We could never put him on scene. His DNA was not inside the house, nothing like that. So we moved on from him.
2: Staff Sergeant Hill also explores the possibility that the killer didn't know Mike and Kathy and that it was a random attack. He looks at other murders committed in the area for a similar pattern, and one name stands out. A serial killer named Todd Colehep.
1: Todd Colehep is a, I use the word, local-ish serial killer operated in Spartanburg County, which is two counties over. So we know he did have dealings down here. And then more information started rolling in about how he had committed a quadruple homicide in the past. We kind of took a look at him.
2: But there is nothing to tie Kohlhepp to the town of Pendleton or the Scott family. And the evidence for it being a random attack is slim.
1: Mike and Kathy were not flashy people. They didn't drive nice cars. They drove decent cars, but it's not like they were rolling around in Mercedes or anything like that. They didn't wear Rolexes and you know they were normal people working class people if you saw them out you would never think that guy has thousands of dollars in cash in his house and if you drove by this house again it's just a double wide trailer in the middle of a place with a thousand double wide trailers and that's if you even noticed it you know and then this area is not somewhere where you get a lot of foot traffic either so I believe it's highly unlikely someone was walking down the road. In fact, I would almost bet a paycheck on if somebody had been walking down the road, someone would have called law enforcement because it would be that abnormal to see someone walking on that street.
2: With few clues of the crime scene, the investigation quickly runs out of viable leads, threatening to grow cold.
3: Seven months, no arrests for the murder of Mike, Kathy, and Barbara Scott. Today marks one year since four people were found dead. It's
2: now been three years since the four brutal murders of the Scott and Taylor families in Pendleton. Staff Sergeant Hill believes the circumstances of the quadruple homicide point to a targeted, planned, and well-thought-out attack.
1: There are really two motives that I believe would be possible, and to be honest, it could be a mixture of both, and that's... A financial gain and hatred. The person knew how to kill someone quickly with a knife. They planned to get in this house and they planned to do it when everyone who lived there's guards were down and they were able to take the biggest threat out, which would have been Mike, you know, being the only man in the house. They took him out first. It was a well executed plan. I mean, as bad as that sounds to say, I mean, as far as the person who did this, They did their homework, they knew what they were doing, and they almost did it flawlessly.
0: A person who does this kind of thing must be a person who has no idea in the difference in what's right and what's wrong. They have to be selfish. I would say there had to be a personal relationship with one or even with all of the victims. It wasn't just a random act of violence. There was no sign of anyone breaking in to the house. So whoever is responsible, it had to have been someone that either was welcomed in or who just came through an unlocked door, which would have been unusual.
3: I got the feeling that it was probably someone that they knew just by how they described that it didn't look like the doors were forced open. The house was immaculately intact and cleaned. The only thing that was out of place was the bodies were laying there. So it wasn't like anyone came in and ransacked the house to look for stuff and and was trying to steal anything. Two upstate families hope a new billboard will bring answers about an unsolved quadruple homicide. The billboard went up nearly five years to the day their loved ones were found murdered in their Pendleton home.
2: The passage of so much time with no answers has left the family feeling more hopeless with every year that goes by.
0: It has been so long. It's been seven years. My family was brutally murdered, and justice would have been, for this case, to have been solved a long time ago. I was taught to believe that God has his hand in every aspect of our lives and in our deaths. I know that my family is at peace. Their bodies are healed. They're in heaven. I know that I'm going to see them again one day.
3: It's sad. I mean, this is something that you think about pretty much every day. And you wish that you could have done something to stop it, but you never know what's gonna happen.
2: If you have any information about the quadruple homicide in Pendleton, South Carolina, submit a tip at 1-888-274-6372 or online at www.p3tips.com, or www.crimesc.com, or go to unsolved.com. Next, on Unsolved Mysteries.
3: I sped to her house as fast as I could. The house was locked, I could see her dogs in the house, and I did a quick run out in the yard along the stream Just screaming her name as loud as I could in case she was laying hurt somewhere and could yell out at me. I just knew something's seriously wrong here.
2: Unsolved Mysteries is a production of Cosgrove Mirror Productions and Cadence 13, an Odyssey company. It is executive produced by Terry Dunn Muir and Chris Corcoran. Produced by Christine Lenig, Courtney Ennis, and Bill Schultz. The story producer for this episode was Ann Toller, and it was edited by Paul Yates. From Cadence 13, editing, mixing, and mastering by Chris Basil and Andy Jaskowitz. Production support by Sean Cherry, Ian Mont, and Ava Fenneberger. Artwork and design is by Kirk Courtney. Publicity by Maura Curran, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schuff. The original theme music was composed by Gary Malkin and Michael Boyd. Thanks for listening to episode 75 of Unsolved Mysteries. Update. In December of 2023, Amy and Ross Villardi were taken into custody and charged with all four murders. The Anderson County Sheriff's Office has not yet revealed what new information informed the arrests, saying instead that all will be revealed in court. The couple has been denied bond and awaits further hearings.